Danny Seabright, who's the uh, president of the uh, UAE, United States uh, Business Council, and has been so for several years, uh, is going to be the moderator, chairperson for this. He's going to introduce, he's going to uh, call people to account if they exceed their uh, acknowledged uh, word limits, or time limits, rather. And um, we'll moderate the question part two. So without further ado, Danny Seabright, who has a background in defense services and with the COIN, Coin Group and um, is a fixture of the Washington scene. And uh, we're fellow travelers in the same vineyard, sometimes different corners of the vineyard, but we support what each other seeks to achieve and accomplish. Danny Seabright. Thank you, uh, Dr. Anthony. It's always a pleasure to be here with you on the same stage. Uh, and, and it's a pleasure to support uh, the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations and all the great work that you do uh, uh, for uh, building understanding between uh, the United States and the countries in the region. Um, I'm joined this morning by a number of impressive colleagues from fellow GCC business councils. Ed Burton, President and Chief Executive Officer of the U.S.-Saudi Arabian Business Council, Ambassador Patrick Theros, President of the U.S. Qatar Business Council, and Shireen Saeed, Commercial Attaché of the Embassy of the of Sultanate of Oman in Washington, D.C. And I was just in uh, Oman uh, a month ago, and it's still as beautiful as ever. I was in Muscat and had a wonderful time. Um, over the next hour and few minutes, uh, we'll take an opportunity to pick the brains of these very knowledgeable individuals about some of the more notable economic developments going on in the Gulf today. Um, to set, let's, let me give a few words to set the stage. Since June 2014, uh, oil prices have fallen dramatically, as we all know, from approximately $115 a barrel at their high to around $50 today. Uh, I'm sure that there's some here in the audience today that could uh, tell me what the exact price is at the moment, uh, but, we, but uh, we'll move on from that. This decline in oil price has spurred GCC states to initiate, initiate or accelerate a number of economic reforms, both collectively and individually. And in my view, this is one of the most important developments that's going on in the region at the moment. Collectively, the GCC is fin finalizing plans to implement an excise tax early next year and a value-added tax, or VAT, by 2018. And ministers just met yesterday in Riyadh with Christian Lagarde from the IMF to, fi to finalize some of the plans on the um, uh, GCC-wide uh, 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 VAT tax. Meanwhile, GCC states have taken measures to raise additional capital by issuing sovereign debt. And at the same time, they have taken moves to reduce expenditures by deregulating subsidies, trimming benefits, privatizing or consolidating public entities, and delaying some certain, uh, certain projects. Elsewhere, some countries are also drawing uh, increased efficiencies by pushing consolidation, as in the UAE with the consolidation of uh, things in the oil industry and in the financial services market and sovereign, uh, sovereign wealth funds. The UAE, for instance, continues to invest significant resources toward the success of Dubai Expo 2020 and the associated construction of an entire new city, Dubai South. Meanwhile, the 2022, the 2022 FIFA World Cup remains central to Qatar's economic development plans. And GCC states are investing heavily in realizing sweeping economic transformation plans, no more key than in Saudi Arabia today with the Saudi Vision 2030, which Ed will talk a little bit more about. Bahrain and Kuwait and Oman have also shown uh, changes, have taken changes, and are moving forward with some of their economic plans today 
uh, uh, Shireen will talk a little bit about what's happening with Oman's new plan uh, that was re re released in the last number of months. And I think we've all seen the ice, as we say, start to melt in Kuwait a little bit. The government is starting to take new decisions on, on, on financing and, and, and construction and infrastructure projects. Thus, in sum, there are both extraordinary new opportunities as well as challenges for U.S. business operating in the region. And this panel, will, I would like folks to drill down on the opportunities and the challenges, both in the GCC as a whole and as, as well in the member states. With that ambitious agenda, let's get started. And what I'm going to do is give each panelist a chance to speak for about five minutes uh, to say a few words. And then I'm going, we're going to have a brief Q&A where I'm going to direct a few questions and then maybe open it up if we have a moment for a question or two from the audience, if that suits all of you. So our first panelist, Ed Burton, is the President and Chief Executive Officer, as I said, of the U.S.-Saudi Business Council, where he works with the American and Saudi public-private sectors to promote the interests of the U.S.-Saudi Arabian bilateral commercial relationship. Prior to joining the Council, Ed served as the commercial attaché at the American Embassy in Riyadh, where he was responsible for all U.S. foreign commercial service operations in Saudi Arabia and Bahrain. Ed is also proudly the author of a recently published book on business and entrepreneurship in Saudi Arabia, Opportunities for Partnering and Investing in Emerging Business. And I believe, Ed, you brought a number of copies of that book with you today, and you can hold it up and show the audience uh, when, when you... They're already gone. They're, they're, they're rolling out like hotcakes, folks. So to my friend and colleague, uh, Ed Burton, for many, many years, Ed, the floor is yours, please. Thank you. Thank you, Danny. Uh, and it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, I never miss an opportunity, publicly or privately, to extol the virtues of the, the Saudi market. And contrary to uh, a lot what, uh, what's being talked about, the GCC in Saudi Arabia, they're not tanking. Actually, um, the economy, both regionally uh, and domestically, continues to expand, albeit obviously uh, at a decelerated uh, rate. Uh, I think uh, the IMF uh, estimates that for 2016, the GCC uh, GDP will expand about 1.8%, uh, which, as was mentioned, given the price of oil is, is not bad. Uh, when it comes to Saudi Arabia, uh, as the, His Excellency uh, Dr. Ibrahim Alasov said yesterday, the economy uh, and, and the fiscal matters of, of Saudi Arabia are in pretty decent shape. There, there are some liquidity uh, problems, which I'll talk about in just a moment. Uh, but by and large, uh, business is being done, uh, and there are opportunities that uh, we never want U.S. companies uh, to miss. Uh, most of the estimates for the Saudi economy for 2016 and going forward, again, is for an expanded economy, uh, albeit uh, at a decelerated rate. So uh, a number of analysts are predicting uh, the GDP for Saudi Arabia uh, oil uh, sector uh, will expand about three-tenths of a percent for 2016. The non-oil sector, which I continue to believe uh, going forward, particularly for the success of Vision 2030, the non-oil sector and the engagement of the private sector is critical uh, to the kingdom's success of its restructuring of its economy and balancing uh, its revenue sources. Uh, it's predicted that uh, that economy, the non-oil economy, the non-oil sector, uh, will grow at about 2.9 
uh, 3%. Now, when you look back in 2015 uh, and you see the growth rates of 3.1% for the oil economy, uh, for the oil sector, uh, and 3.6% for the non-oil sector, you can definitely see a contraction uh, and, and you can see a deceleration primarily tied to, of course, uh, the global price of oil. But the kingdom, uh, the, the primary rationale, obviously, for Vision 2030 is to move beyond, move the Saudi economy beyond uh, stasis tied to the oil industry. It needs to do that since the first development plan, the national development plan and 10-year plan or five-year plan in, in 1970, it knew it had to do that. Uh, and uh, thanks for mentioning my book, Danny, because one of the things I talk about in that book uh, is that from the first development plan in 1970 to the ninth plan, which they were working on, which Vision 2030 superseded, they've always talked about the engagement of the private sector. Uh, and so even though with the liquidity problems with the banks, both uh, in the national level, the central bank, and also the national banks, uh, and even though many companies continue to be cash-strapped, it is critical that the private sector be brought in to, uh, in a meaningful way and given the incentives that they need to contribute to the, uh, the success of, of Vision 2030. Uh, so I know I only have five minutes, but, but I think when you look at Vision 2030 and you uh, view its goals of, uh, for instance, moving uh, small and medium-sized businesses and their contributions to the GDP from what is now 20% to 35%, uh, when you look at uh, the goal of moving the private sector in Saudi Arabia, which now contributes 40% to Saudi Arabia's GDP, and moving that to 50%, there's a lot of work to be done, uh, and they're tying that to a lot of things like privatization uh, and, um, uh, and, and many other things. Uh, but again, the message is you know, business is, uh, is, is being done, and it's being done still in the big way. There are some challenges, but the future, from my perspective and from the Council's perspective for Saudi, is bright. Danny? Thank you very much, Ed. Uh, very much appreciate those remarks. Um, we'll come back to you with some questions after we've had a chance to hear from the rest of our speakers. Our second panelist is Ambassador Patrick Theros. Ambassador Theros has served as the president of the U.S. Qatar Business Council for over 15 years. And prior to joining the council in March 2010, he had a distinguished 36-year career in the U.S. Foreign Service, which was punctuated by a four-year stint as U.S. Ambassador to Qatar from 95 until 98. In addition to his work at the U.S. Qatar Business Council, Ambassador Theros serves on the Board of Directors of the Middle East Policy Council and is a member of the Council of Foreign Relations. Ambassador Theros has also been a close friend and colleague and advisor to me on all things Qatar for many years. So, Ambassador Theros, the floor is yours. Danny, thank you very much. I'd like to say special thanks to Ambassador Anthony. Uh, he and I have been friends for more decades than I think either one of us would like to remember. But he has put together and led for the same number of decades an organization that has probably contributed more to understanding the importance of the U.S.-Arab relationship than any other in this city. Let me talk, I'm going to try and keep this brief because frankly I would like to provoke questions uh, better than lecturing you. Uh, so 
some points of information uh, that I think are important to understanding Qatar and its relationship with the United States, especially in business and finance. Uh, Qatar grew from 95 to 2013 at an unprecedented rate. Uh, there were mo moments when GDP uh, increase went into the do high double digits, uh, over 20% in one year. And when you grow that fast, there obviously you are creating uh, more structures by topsy rather than structures by plan. So I think we have to look at what's happening now in terms not of a retrenchment, but more of a pause to get your, to reorganize and see what is the best way forward. In terms of the effect of the oil price drops on Qatar, they've been minimal. Uh, uh, Qatar uh, production is the smallest uh, production of any OPEC country. Uh, more importantly, its price points are extremely low, so the, uh, it is very it would be very interesting to calculate, no one has, at what point does the production of oil and uh, what price point does the production of oil and cutter uh, become uneconomic? More importantly, most of Qatar's revenues today come from liquefied natural gas exports. Uh, LNG is mostly marketed on long-term take-or-pay agreements. So, although it is not impervious to the drop in oil prices, nor to the expansion of American uh, natural gas production. Uh, the effects we felt over a much longer period of time. In effect, uh, the cutteries have pretty much settled on 71 million tons, per, 72 million tons per year export LNG, and I think that will be the steady state. More importantly, they are looking at how they can change their economy uh, to adjust to, first of all, the realities of the world, the new realities, and secondly, uh, the needs of the country. Everyone wants to diversify. Uh, the entire region is, all the uh, GCC countries are looking at ways of diversifying. For Qatar, this presents a special challenge as one of the smaller countries in the region, is how do you diversify with, uh, uh, without simply duplicating what is happening in your neighborhood? This is one, the first place where it's very important for American companies. We have, our companies have imagination, our companies have a knowledge of worldwide markets that is second to none. Uh, one of the key interests in Qatar is foreign direct investment into Qatar. It is not so much the money as it is the technology, the business know-how, uh, the, know, the knowledge of the market that will make inbound investment a very, very lucrative uh, venture, both for the Qataris and for the American companies. Uh, Qatar has some other uh, challenges which are important. The, uh, how do you build on relative advantage? What is it that Qatar brings to the market? Uh, it's uh, low, ga uh, low gas prices, low energy prices, a central location, uh, but these also are present in its neighbors. Right now, we are watching three of the world's best airlines uh, destroy the rest of the airline industry worldwide, and, uh, but will, will they set about destroying each other? There's got to be, there's probably an upward limit to how many airplanes can fly through Doha and Dubai and Abu Dhabi en route to the Far East. Uh, there also is a need to look at the internal uh, structure of the country. Uh, 
Qatar 2022 is very important to the future of the country, however, the, the FIFA, the World Cup. However, perhaps it is most important in the way it is restructuring the way the, company, the country governs itself. Uh, that topsy-turvy growth from 1995 on produced a lot of asymmetries, a, uh, things we can actually call uh, abuse as well as, uh, as waste. You have to look at things uh, in a more intelligent and a carefully thought out way. It also paradoxically spurred criticism, which in the end I think is the Qataris have understood and they have embraced and they are setting about trying to fix. We can talk later about uh, a lot of the issues, say, concerning uh, labor, but the Qataris, I, I'm here to assure you, do understand that this is a problem and are trying to fix it and the road ahead is not, there is no real clear roadmap as to how do you undo the last 70 to 100 years of practices in a few years. Uh, good news for American companies. First of all, as I said, this is an excellent opportunity for American companies to begin looking at productive export-oriented investments in Qatar. Secondly, uh, we have one great advantage, which I continue to believe I didn't at the time that the law came out, but I continue to believe that American adherence to the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act gives us an advantage that uh, a lot of our competitors don't have uh, throughout the region, and uh, not especially, but uh, throughout the region, I think the importance of clean dealing, the importance of uh, avoiding fraud, waste, and abuse uh, is, has risen in the, uh, in the attitudes of all the governments in the region, especially in Doha, and it is, uh, this is an advantage for American companies. We may not be the cheapest, but I think we're pretty close to the best, and we really are close to the most honest. Uh, the other uh, part of diversification is how do you manage your uh, investments abroad? Uh, Qatar is particularly interested now in investing in the American market. You know, the Emir, His Highness Sheikh Tamim, uh, uh, two years ago announced that Qatar Investment Authority by itself had a mandate to put $35 billion in the next seven years into the U.S. market. Uh, by Qatari standards, this is a huge amount of money. By American standards, it actually isn't, but we are a very large and complex market. So they are looking for intelligent places, lucrative places to put good long-term investment. And, with it, uh, and we're not talking about financial engineering here. This is not uh, an authority that is looking to trade uh, in and out, buy something, sell it. This is something, this is an authority that is looking to build an economic package, an asset package in the United States that will be important to the Qataris over the next generation or two. Uh, I'm not gonna talk right now about the politics of the region other than to say that the state of Qatar has applauded the, uh, the agreement to stop nuclear, uh, the nuclear arms race in the region, so to speak, to, with Iran, because they see this as the first step, hopefully, in opening Iran to the world market, and they are particularly well situated to deal with such a market. So they are, they made, uh, they've made it no secret of the fact that they regard this agreement as an opportunity rather than a challenge. And with that, I'd like to move on, thanks.
Ambassador Theros, thank you very much for your remarks. And we'll come back to you on a couple of those points that you made with some further questions. Our third panelist today is Ms. Shireen Saeed. Ms. Saeed has been the commercial attache at the Embassy of the Sultanate of Oman in Washington, D.C. since July 2009. In this capacity, she works to expand the trade relationship between Oman and the United States and to facilitate the U.S.-Oman Free Trade Agreement to promote inward investment and export sales for the Sultanate. Prior to her appointment as commercial attache, Ms. Saeed served at ITHRA, formerly known as Oman's Public Authority for Investment Promotion and Export Development. She also worked for 12 years at the Central Bank of Oman and four years at PricewaterhouseCoopers. Ma'am, the floor is yours. Thank you for that kind introduction. Um, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It's a great pleasure to be here with you today, and thank you, National Council on Youth Arab Relations, Dr. Anthony, for providing me with this opportunity to talk about Oman. So I would like to start by giving you a brief idea about my country, Oman. Um, it is about the size of Arizona. It has a coastline of about 1,000 miles and a population of about 3.8 million. And its strategic importance is immediately obvious when you look at the map. So we're located at the tip of the Arabian Peninsula, halfway between the east and west trade routes. So you will have easy access to the markets in Asia, Africa, uh, Europe, and as well as the US. Um, it only takes about two and a half weeks to reach the um, west, east coast of the United States. We enjoy remarkable political stability and excellent relations with all our neighbors. Oman has a lot to offer to tourists and business visitors alike with its rich cultural heritage, friendly people, and abundant scenic beauty. So we have it all. We have the lovely beaches, we have the mountains, for those who like mountain trekking, and we have beautiful deserts, which I didn't realize how beautiful it is until I went there myself. It's really, really spectacular. Um, Oman has always pursued a path of quiet diplomacy. Just recently, the UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon has la lauded Oman for its discreet role as a mediator in peace talks and helping resolve conflicts in the region. Um, Oman has been involved often in uh, the release of hostages I mean, from Oman and, and, uh, and also we, we sent a plane to, the, to Yemen to help evacuate the U.S. Embassy. And um, how did I know about this? Because um, a business associate actually, he called me and he said, thank you. And I said, for what? He said, because you sent a plane to Yemen and his son was on that plane, so he was very grateful. So I really do appreciate that. Oman has made great strides in all sectors of the economy over the past 45 years. And the accession of His Majesty Sultan Qaboos bin Said in 1970 transformed the country into a modern progressive state with a modern infrastructure. So um, as Saudi Arabia have a vision 2030, we have our vision 2020. We're working now on, a, on our vision 2040, but uh, uh, we're still working on it. And these, uh, this long-term development plan is implemented in a series of five-year plans. The current one is uh, from 2016 to 2020. And uh, the objective is to secure Oman's future growth through diversification of the economic base, greater private sector participation, and upgrading the skills of the Omani workforce. 
thereby creating employment opportunities for Omanis in sectors seen as pivotal to our growth. Um, on, in the main objective of the current five-year development plan, uh, it involves, um, is mainly on infrastructure. And an estimated 33.8 billion will be spent on infrastructure, with transport, transportation accounting for the largest share. This includes several projects, including the three major ports um, in Oman, which are located in the north, in central Oman, and in the south, um, as well as new roads, airports, and new railway system, and other projects in electricity, water, and tourism are planned. Although oil has long been the backbone of the Oman economy, uh, recently non-oil sector is making great strides, and given its uh, strategic location, we have exerted great efforts to position ourselves as a future glo global shipping and logistics hub. The major ports of Sohar, Dukum, and Salala have undergone massive transformation to serve as regional hubs for fisheries, oil storage, refining, downstream petrochemicals and other value-added production such as plastics, fertilizer, metals, which includes iron, steel, and aluminum. The industrial estates, free trade zones are all um, adjacent to our ports and they're very well equipped and, and have state-of-the-art facilities. And it's, uh, they're uh, outside the congested Strait of Hormuz, so they serve as low-cost manufacturing hubs. Oman and the U.S. have always shared a strong relationship going back as far as 1833 when the first uh, commercial treaty was signed between the two countries. And the growing commercial ties are underscored by the Oman-US Free Trade Agreement, which was signed in 2009. The FTA has eliminated tariffs on virtually all products and expedited, expedited the movements of goods and services between the two countries. So since uh, the implementation of the FTA, our uh, bilateral trade has gone up by 50%. In 2015, our U.S. exports to Oman totaled $1.554 billion, and U.S. imports from Oman totaled $748.5 million. Top export categories for U.S. goods to Oman include vehicles, machinery, electrical machinery, optic and medical instruments, while top categories of U.S. goods imports from Oman include plastics, fertilizer, iron, and steel products. There are many attractive incentives for U.S. businesses wishing to establish in Oman, um, but uh, each uh, um, port or uh, free trade zone have their own set of attractive um, incentives. So generally, we have 100% um, foreign ownership for U.S. businesses, a one-stop shop to expedite new investment proposals, corporate income tax among the lowest in the region set at 12%, no personal income tax, corporate tax holidays for up to 10 years for um, um, the strategic industries, and exemption of import duties on uh, plant equipment and material um, for strategic industries. Um, foreign direct investment by U.S. investors to Oman has increased since 2009. 34 new U.S. companies have registered in Oman since 2009, accounting for nearly 50% of the total registered U.S. companies since 1982. So uh, pre-FTA, U.S. foreign direct investment in Oman stood at $884 million and rose to $992 million by 2013. Currently, it stands at $639 million.
There are many opportunities for U.S. companies in leading sectors, and many um, American companies and franchises and retail outlets are well established in Oman, including some of the sponsors of, for this uh, um, conference. With the growth in population, industrialization program, and continuing government investment in infrastructure projects, the Sultanate's power and water demand has witnessed a rapid growth. This has led to ambitious programs to cater to the growing demand for utilities, providing a host of opportunities for U.S. companies in water conservation technologies, desalination, which is very important for us because you know, we lie at, at, uh, at the coast, so um, we have salty water and um, very little water, so, and waste management as well. Given the growing number of industrial, mining, and infrastructure projects um, underway, the demand for machinery and equipment is projected also to increase in the coming years. So there are many opportunities for U.S. businesses, and I'd like to uh, give you a brief overview of some of the exciting projects which are underway at the moment. In tourism, we have the waterfront project, which is uh, tourism is, is our, well, I would say one of our largest industries, and um, we have enjoying a growth of 9% annually. And um, so in our main, well, it was an older port um, in um, Muscat, which is located at the Corniche, where we have our traditional um, souk and fish market. It's going to be transformed into a, a, a first-class waterfront in the region. And uh, Yes, and so this is a $1.3 billion project, and it's a joint venture by Omran, which is the investment arm in tourism in Oman, and the remaining 49% is owned by pensions, investment funds, and private sector investors. So the waterfront will have cafes, restaurants, shops, um, war, uh, trade war, uh, war, fishermen's wharf, hotels from three to five star, um, besides other facilities. In rene renewable energy, we also have some game-changing projects underway. In the oil sector, a U.S.-based company formed under the FTA um, is extracting oil from the ground by using solar energy. So that's a very exciting project. And the extracting oil is relatively expensive in Oman, so this is, of course, a very big benefit for us. In the non oil sector, we have a wind farm, and that's in the south of, of Oman. And this is a joint venture with Masdar of the United Arab Emirates, and it provides a capacity of 50 megawatt and, uh, to, uh, to um, take care of the energy needs of about 16,000 homes. I would also like to mention Dokum, which is a relatively new area in the central Oman, which was rel relatively underdeveloped. It has a land area of about 1,777 kilometers squared and 80 kilometers of coastline along the Arabian Sea. So making it one of the largest um, free trade zones in the MENA region. It has been divided into several zones. So we have the industrial zone, the oil refinery, petrochemical complex, fishery zone, uh, dry dock facility, which is already, has already been opened logistics, residential, central business district, tourism, and recreational zone. 
and it will meet the needs of the business and recreational visitors alike and is fully supported by multimodal transportation, um, including uh, we're working on our rail project that connects it with other GCC countries, the Middle East, Africa, Asia. And it has a state-of-the-art uh, airport, busy commercial seaport, and world-class infrastructure. Combined with a strategic location on the busy east-west trade route, creates a unique logistical warehousing, distribution, and re-export business opportunities for US companies. I'd like to say a little bit also about our rail project. So it's a new $15 billion uh, project, and um, it's going to, of course, revolutionize our transportation system um, and enhance our transportation system. And, of course, we, we, we highly regard American products, products and services, and we know very little about uh, rail, so we really um, we encourage American companies to come forward. In closing, I'd like to say that Oman offers excellent opportunities and incentives for U.S. businesses looking to expand to the mar uh, US, uh, market in the Middle East. And it, uh, the FDA has greatly contributed to our economic diversification and modernization program and opened up new opportunities for U.S. businesses. So as we embark on our largest scale industrial expansion, we invite American companies to partner us and uh, take part in, in, in our uh, initiatives. Um, my hope is that the companies gathered here today will use this forum to cultivate meaningful business contacts, and I look forward to welcome you to Oman. Thank you very much for your kind attention. Thank you, Shireen. Um, I've received a lot of questions. Uh, many of them have to do with politics and not so much with business and trade. Uh, I'm going to steer away from those, or I'm going to ask them in such a way that they, they are about the impact on business and trade. And, the and I'm going to defer my time on the UAE because I think we, uh, we, we have a good sense of where Dubai is and Abu Dhabi at the moment uh, in their economic, economic transformation and diversification. And so we'll launch right into this if I could. Um, I like to talk about our relationships, of United States relationships in the region uh, with most of the countries in the region as a stool with three legs, uh, a, di a diplomatic a stool that started many, many years ago, uh, followed closely by a security and defense stool uh, when U.S. Uh, uh, forces started operating in the region uh, for, for better peace and security, and then by the, by the trade and investment stool that we have, which has actually become one of the most important legs of the stool in recent years. Now, there's been a lot of uh, uh, churn, as I think we've heard from Dr. Anthony and others over the last uh, 24 hours, in the relationship between the United States and many countries in the region. There's disquiet over what happened with Egypt and Syria uh, by the Obama administration. There's unease with regard to the deal with Iran. There's anger over JASTA. And there's uncertainty as a result of, US, of the U.S. election process that's going on right now. I just came back from a two-week trip to the region, and every single meeting and I had eight, seven, eight meetings a day, 50% of every discussion was about the U.S. elections and what's going to happen next and what's the imp impact on business. So I'm, I'm going to ask uh, our panelists, and we'll start with Ed and work down, just uh, 30 seconds on has America's role in the region diminished as, as it, as it, as it, as it uh, pertains to American business and, uh, and opportunities for American business going forward? Well, I'd have to say, you know, having spent a good part of my career with the U.S. Department of Commerce and championing 
business interest in, in, in um, all over the world, but uh, three years in Saudi Arabia. I, I can say that the, the, the good work continues, but um, you know, over the last eight years, uh, the relationship has taken some hits. And of course, everyone is talking about JASTA. And I have to say, you know, going back uh, 10 years, I have not seen a more incendiary, toxic piece of legislation that's become law to affect the U.S.-Saudi business relationship that, that, that I've seen. I think the, the enactment of JASTA has opened up a door which will create an acute and prolonged chill in U.S. commercial relations. Now, it's not going away. U.S. interests in Saudi Arabia are, are too deep and, and even Saudi interests here in the United States with $10 billion refinery, Saudi Aramco with Royal Dutch Shell and them eyeing the Lindell um, basil refinery perhaps as a, an investment. But nevertheless, uh, this, this will, in our opinion, act as a withering agent on U.S.-Saudi econo US economic relations unless this law is amended and amended quickly. Thank you. Ambassador? Yeah. With regard to uh, the U.S. Uh, business relationship with the region and with Qatar, uh, I would say that there's been no real, uh, there's been no diminution. In fact, our exports have continued to increase. Uh, our business relationships, the, uh, the, tr the financial transactions with countries of the GCC have continued to increase almost without regard to whatever perceptions there are of political uh, differences between the countries. Uh, the world has changed. Uh, the truth of the matter is that uh, when that kid burned himself in Tunisia, the world changed completely. Uh, the players have, some have weakened him, some have strengthened. So it's not that there has been, there have not been serious changes in America's relationship with the region. But so far, I've not seen uh, this spilling over into the business sector, particularly, uh, particularly with Qatar. Now, uh, Ed is absolutely right. JASTA is terrifying. It is perhaps the dumbest piece of legislation I've seen the U.S. Congress produce in my lifetime if maybe the invasion of Iraq was worse. But you should read JASTA. Uh, every, all the newspaper headlines claim it allows people to sue Saudi Arabia. If you read this piece of legislation, uh, it allows any county clerk in any county or state in the United States to sue any country in the world if you can find some smart lawyer and some dumb judge uh, to agree that something occurred. It is an unbelievably clumsy, poorly thought out, poorly drafted piece of legislation. Uh, it can only chill. I'm just waiting for the really good trial lawyers to start making, turning this thing into a disaster. Other than that, no, I think everything's okay. Okay, Ambassador uh, Shireen, you want to comment? Okay, um, well, Oman U.S. trade relations are very strong, as, as are the political relationship between Oman and the U.S. And Oman is often the intermediary in the region, as I mentioned, uh, between the U.S. and, and other um, uh, uh, part of, uh, countries. Uh, we have, of course, the, the Oman U.S. Free Trade Agreement, and that's going really well. And we have excellent relations with our U.S. Um, uh, partners. Um, if my telephone is not ringing off the hook, then there's something wrong. But 
believe me, there are a lot of U.S. companies interested in, in establishing in Oman. Recently had a proposal in the steel industry and they want to establish in Oman and, and it's going really fast because of, we have a one-stop shop. And um, so I would say we have excellent relations and I don't really see that changing. Okay, excellent. I'm going to offer a cautionary tale that's a little adverse from that and I'm going to say that in fact our friends in the region are looking east. They're looking to China and India. American companies still have the best technology, still have the best products and services to offer for sure, but uh, our friends in the region are growing weary uh, uh, of, of what it takes sometimes to cooperate and, and work together with the United States and, and some of the baggage that we bring to the table. And I'll just sort of put it that way. And I'll say that uh, we are seeing more business uh, starting to go uh, in the other direction. Now that, that in a, by a sovereign nation in the, in the region that has feet in both east and west, that's a responsible thing to do in its own right. But I think we should all be uh, uh, watching carefully uh, how these relationships develop in the years ahead because I think there is a new trend line afoot. And I'll stop there. Um, if we could go uh, real quickly uh, to, the, to the GCC as a, as a governing body organization and playing a stronger role in strengthening commercial and trade relationships um, between the United States and the, the GCC countries. As, as I said in my opening remarks, we see new economic reform measures being implemented with VAT and, and a host of other things, whether it's standards, uh, whether it's excise tax. There's a, the GCC is taking more of a leadership role in trying to unite the GCC countries. And I'm curious from the panelists if you would, if you would comment how you see that uh, going. Is it going to be primarily bilateral for years to come, or, or does the GCC have a chance to play a bigger and more important role? And we do have a new GCC ambassador in the United States who just came, I believe, this summer, so that's another sign, I think, of a growing GCC role from my perspective. Uh, Ed? You know, since its beginning in, in 1981, it's, it's had some, some really good uh, accomplishments, uh, and one of the ones that are outstanding in terms of uh, uh, intra-GCC uh, trade, uh, of course, has been the establishment of a unified uh, uh, border, customs border. Uh, and that uh, has uh, grown uh, in terms of uh, trade. It still has some hiccups, particularly in land border crossings, uh, but the infrastructure is there. One of uh, my disappointments, having watched it uh, from the creation of the central bank in 2006-2007, uh, was, of course, the, the withdrawal of UAE uh, from, from that um, when uh, the, the capital of the, the, the bank was made in Riyadh. But the, the failure of a common currency, I think, in these days would greatly uh, aid the GCC in achieving some of the benchmarks that it had set over a decade ago in terms of uh, intra-GCC uh, trade, which, you know, a few years ago stood at $100 billion, probably more now. Uh, but there, that, that common currency, we, we have to watch. There's a lot of obstacles uh, there. Uh, but if everyone can get on the same page there, since all of the currencies, uh, except I believe Kuwait, is tied to, um, uh, and perhaps Oman, tied to the U.S. dollar. Uh, it would help the environment. But I see good things, particularly when it comes to entrepreneurship, and there's been a number of initiatives by the GCC uh, in uh, promoting entrepreneurships among um, the GCC countries. Thank you. Go ahead, Ambassador Theros. Uh, I believe the GCC has had so far only a very limited effect 
on American trade with, uh, with the countries of the GCC. Uh, one, as a, as a country ourselves, we have difficulty dealing with, so with trade associations. We have difficulty dealing with, uh, even with the, uh, the European Union. Much, uh, so much of our trade is still denominated in our minds in terms of the individual countries uh, rather, than the, uh, uh, rather than the group as a whole. Our statistics are weighted towards the individual countries. The way we approach markets is towards the individual countries. So from the U.S. point of view, uh, it would take a far more unified and vigorous GCC to change that equation. Now, uh, the, I think the GCC faces certain real challenges, the first one being that the prototype for all unions, uh, the European Union seems to be in somewhat serious trouble itself. I don't believe that the lack of a common currency, given that almost all the currencies are pegged to the dollar, uh, is, inhibits trade between the United States and the GCC states. On diverse, on, sorry, on intra-GCC trade, uh, trade, though that has increased, that hasn't increased that much considering the opportunity, and I think it will only increase once the countries of the, uh, of the Council begin truly to diversify their economies. So if they begin to produce other things than what the, the neighbor is producing. Right now, they are, truth be told, still energy dependent, still dependent on the export of energy for the overwhelming not necessarily the statistical numbers of uh, their exports, but for the fact that all, almost all their exports are based in one way or another on energy. So I think the, uh, in terms of the relationship with the United States and in terms of intra-GCC trade, it really has to wait to see how well the countries diversify and then how well do they integrate the diversification so that intra-GCC trade becomes a reality. Uh, John Duke Anthony. <clears throat> uh, just to add to um, the positive side, uh, but not uh, be Pollyanna-ish about it, um, that because others haven't mentioned it, uh, Danny did mention in passing, uh, the pan-GCC standards um, agreement that was a Saudi Arabian standards uh, organization. It's been enlarged uh, to embrace all six of the GCC countries, at least as seeking to have common standards, weights, measures, which can spell the, a big difference uh, to exporters trying to get their goods into the GCC if there are uh, different standards in one country uh, versus another. Secondly, they're still wedded strategically and notionally to a pan GCC railroad. It uh, target date was to be 2017. Uh, that's not going to be uh, uh, reached. Uh, but at least there's a de facto agreement that where will the railroad go? It will uh, follow the existing lines of the borders of the GCC countries. So that in itself gives a degree of uh, certainty with regard to how people can plan, predict, and anticipate with regard to their own investments. Uh, and view what that, uh, the implications of that railroad uh, would be, which would be extraordinary, not just for trade, not just for cargo, not just for construction machinery, but also uh, for passengers as well or anticipated. Uh, but railroads have not uh, been all that successful in Saudi Arabia 
in the history of the one country that's had railroads. Although Saudi Arabia is um, committed uh, to expanding its own uh, uh, railroad network in four different um, uh, conjunctions uh, there. There remains on uh, the table the economic unity agreement amongst all six from June 1981. The language was misleading and, and um, problematic uh, because it wasn't a unitary agreement. Rather, it was a blueprint of a vision of how the GCC might give serious and favorable consideration to marching and uh, harness in the future rather than in six different uh, competing uh, and, and sometimes harshly competing uh, directions. Uh, there was the free trade agreement talks between the EU and the GCC from 1987 annual talks until 19, uh, 2008. And the reason it failed, and it seems to be uh, irremediable, it's not about to be revived, not because of the GCC, uh, but the uh, EU kept moving the goalpost. It was agreed, a general person's agreement, that neither side would interfere in the domestic affairs of the other, uh, but the EU did keep interfering in the GCC's domestic affairs on human rights. Uh, if truth be known, and some may disagree with this, the, uh, a real reason was that uh, the Dutch and the Germans realized that the, if there was a free trade agreement, there's no way that they could compete with the cheaper gas from Qatar and other GCC countries, uh, which would spell a death blow to their petrochemicals industry. So sometimes when people have a negative obstacle, they dress it up with uh, something else uh, by provoking the GCC to back away by uh, interfering in the domestic affairs of the GCC countries, uh, UAE and, and others there. Uh, sixth point and last is that 90% of the GCC secretariat staff work on economic issues. Uh, 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 only 10% work on the geopolitical, the defense, the strategic, the intelligence, and the security. And uh, uh, therefore, every day, there are that many that go to work and dream and scheme and try to prepare and get through some of these log jams. And it's not just idle reflection. They meet. Uh, there are hundreds of meetings at the GCC Secretary to deal with these commercial investment, trade, labor uh, mobilization, cross-border uh, easing of uh, uh, tariffs and, and logistics and operations and transportation and communications. Every day there's a meeting. It just doesn't make it into the Western media. Thank you, sir. Uh, Shireen, can I ask you to give a last word or so from the standpoint of Oman in cooperation with the GCC? Um, well, um of course, uh, we pursued the free trade agreement between Oman and the U.S. US. on a uh, bilateral basis, and it's going very well. I mean, at the beginning, we had some teething problems, but they've all been resolved. So I think that we're doing very well with the, with the and as well, we, of course, also trade with the GCC. I don't really foresee many problems, but we, we have to remain competitive. That's definitely an issue. I mean, we have to focus on that. Ladies and gentlemen, we're at the end of our time. I've been give, I have literally 30 questions here uh, from the audience, and I wish we had more time to address them. Maybe I can 
share them with Dr. Anthony and he can find a way to, to, that we can get some detailed answers published or written uh, in response to what you ask. I want to end on a, on a positive note by saying that all of the countries in the region have some form of a diversification plan underway. Uh, this diversification plan is a, is a, isn't a goal or an aim or a vision of diversifying the economies away from sole reliance on oil and gas in the future. Obviously, they're going to all rely on, on some uh, level of oil and gas revenue gen, uh, uh, in the future. But there's a plan. They have plans in place. And these plans are the opportunities for American companies to plug in. These diversification plans that are on websites, on the embassy's websites, published out in the media, these are the opportunities for American companies to come and, and find business because this is where these countries are investing in what we bring, what our companies bring to the table. That's number one on a positive note. Number two on a positive note is what I started with, the business and economic reforms that are underway. We have a bankruptcy law being established in the United, in, in the United Arab Emirates, which is going to allow uh, small and medium enterprise to come in and set up business, set up shop, and take a risk and be able to fail uh, uh, if, when they take a risk. And that's critically important to small and medium enterprise for the future. Uh, we have changes that are coming to the company's law to allow foreign companies to come in and have 100% ownership. We have the changes that are occurring with VAT and excise tax and everything else throughout the GCC. These are all very, very positive developments for business for the future in the region and will help our American companies succeed and do even more than they have. And with that, Dr. Anthony, I'll turn it over to you for a closing word. No, you've got 15 more minutes if you want. Uh, I was told we had to be done at 10.30, so unless somebody's changed the time on me uh, in the back there. We'll split the difference. Take eight more minutes. Take eight more minutes. All right. Well, <laughs> see, I did that great wrap-up, and now you're going to ask me to ask more questions. Um, uh, so there were a couple questions from the audience, for, uh, uh, and I'll just go to one on Qatar. And it, it is a little bit more of a political one, Ambassador Theros, but I know that you can, uh, you can cover it. Um, and it's, it's Qatar's stance on some of the regional conflicts, uh, working with Iran, diplomacy with Israel, support of the Muslim Brotherhood, straddling fences, if you will, throughout the region, uh, trying to be uh, everybody's, everybody's friend. And, and let me ask the question in a way of, has this helped Qatar with this stance on foreign policy? Does it help Qatar overall with its business relationships, or does it hurt it? Um, does it inhibit it in any way, or does it promote it? The short answer to the, la to the main part of the question is it has, in my view, made virtually no difference at all in its business and economic relationships. Uh, uh, Qatar has, there's an interesting, I'm trying to remember the name of the book, but an interesting history of the state of Qatar going all the way back to uh, the 1700s when the Althani family became, uh, became the ruling family. And that when you are a very small state blessed with considerable riches in a neighborhood that is populated by larger predatory states plus others, plus others from the outside, uh, a careful balancing of diplomacy is never a mistake. The, uh, the Qataris have always seen their future and their prosperity tied up in regional stability. And Frequently, the only way to maintain regional stability is to maintain a relationship with everyone. Uh, I alluded earlier to the fact that the Qataris have seen the nuclear agreement with Iran as an opportunity 
and not a threat or a challenge. Uh, Qatar was the first state in the Gulf to drop the primary boycott of Israel because the Qataris understood that Israel is here to stay. It is an important component of the relationship with the United States. And the entire region is better off with Israel on the inside with its many neighbors rather than being an adversary and on the outside. It, uh, the Qataris have long maintained, uh, have been the, are the only country in the, in the GCC, I believe, and I may stand corrected, that now has a formal agreement, a, tree, a ratified treaty with every one of its neighbors, including Iran, demarcating its borders and demarcating its economic zones. The last one was the International Court of Justice uh, that demarcated, uh, settled the Hawar Island dispute. So uh, it is the only, I think Oman now also does, I, I just remembered, uh, one of the two states in the Gulf that has a formal uh, agreement, a ratified agreement with Iran demarcating the economic zone in the region. This is also important because roughly something between a quarter and a third of what the Qataris refer to as the North Dome gas field and what the Iranians call the South Pars field uh, is shared by both countries. It has settled its border uh, differences with the United Arab Emirates. It has settled its border differences with Saudi Arabia. Uh, it does not see any advantage to maintaining uh, what I think others, uh, it does not want to be a party to a dispute. Let me restate it this way. It wants to be uh, a solution to a dispute and certainly not a party to it. Uh, there are those who have criticized Qatari diplomacy for being overly aggressive, but uh, say in trying to settle uh, conflict in Lebanon or in trying to settle conflict in the South Sudan. Uh, those places aren't that far away anymore and there are perhaps 50,000 Sudanese and another 50 to 60,000 Lebanese living in Qatar. All this affects the state. So what you have is a, a, a foreign policy of engagement rather than a foreign policy of picking sides. Thank you, Ambassador. I, I, that helps clarify uh, a point of view. Um, this is an interesting question from the audience. Um, every high-level trade mission to the GCC, including ones led by Secretary Pritzker and other senior officials at the Commerce Department, have bypassed Bahrain and Oman. Um, is an FTA sufficient to promote bilateral trade with these two countries, or does it take more ongoing advocacy? Can AmChans and business councils do it alone without the U.S. government? Well, one point I'll first make is there is no business council between Oman and um, uh, the U.S., nor with Bahrain and the, and the U.S. I think the one that was at the U.S. chamber with Bahrain is largely defunct at this point. So I think the lack of, a, of, of two business councils to help uh, promote relations uh, business relations and ties between the two countries is a, is a deficiency. And I know that the, there are AmCham's in each country, and I know that they are active and they try to do the job. But I guess from, I'll start with, with you, uh, Shireen. Just from the perspective of, of Oman, uh, th should the U.S. be doing more? Should the U.S. be more active? Do you think uh, 
Do you think the U.S. does enough, uh, the Commerce Department? They, I mean, I'm, I'm taking it for granted, but what's said on this piece of paper that, that Secretary Pritzker and the Obama administration have not come to Oman in, in a high-level way in, eight, in seven and a half years. Well, I guess for Bahrain and Oman, we're probably relying more on our free trade agreement with the U.S. So we've had actually several delegations coming to Oman, maybe not at a higher level, but uh, we seem to be doing uh, fine with, with the... Um, you know, and there are many individual U.S. companies also who approach me and they uh, visit Oman, so I don't feel really we have the, we. Okay. But we could, we could do more. I mean, definitely right. we could do more. Um, can you say that into the microphone again? Okay. We can't hear you. Yes, um, I think because we have a free trade agreement, so we're relying on that really to help us promote our, you know, opportunities, investment opportunities and trade. And, uh, but I think that Oman and probably also, I can't really speak on behalf of Bahrain, but uh, we don't seem to see that there's any deficiency. Perhaps we could do a little bit more, but um, okay. yeah. I think Ed, I'm gonna ask you from the standpoint of, of your former work at the embassy representing, working on behalf of both countries and your view and perspective on Bahrain, just to comment if, uh, if there's more that should be being done uh, from, by the U.S. government, in your view, uh, with regard to promoting uh, U.S.-Bahrain uh, commercial and business ties? Uh, when I was serving in the embassy in, in Riyadh, uh, I had a purview over commercial operations in the embassy, in, American embassy in Manama. And uh, at the time, trade levels were going up. And I think since then they placed uh, a commercial attache in, in Bahrain. I could be mistaken. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of cross-border trade, obviously, between Bahrain and uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, and so there's, there's always more that can be done by um, U.S. commercial government-driven interests uh, here in Washington to, to expand trade there. So, so the answer is no, they're not. They're not doing quite enough. There's always more to be done. I know that uh, Dow Lay is the senior commercial counselor uh, for the region based in, out of Abu Dhabi. He's also the commercial counselor in Abu Dhabi. But he has a, takes a very, very active role working with the Commerce Department in promoting uh, relations uh, in, with all the countries with the United States and, and, and tries very, very hard to do all that can be done. I, I guess I think the point was from the question is would a, would a senior level visit by a Secretary of Commerce or some very, very senior U.S. government officials shine a little light on these two relationships, give them a little extra grease or attention, I think they, it prob they probably, probably would and could if, if such, a, uh, such visits, visits could happen. Go ahead. Oh, one point I would like to add is I have mixed feelings about the value of trade missions. Uh, they come, they show up, I came, I saw, and I left, and I'm trying to sort out the cards that I picked up in the, in the receptions and the meetings. Uh, too many of these trade missions, uh, we, uh, both when I was ambassador and later, our trade missions uh, seem to consist of uh, half a day of official meetings, a reception in the evening, and the next day you'd left for Abu Dhabi, repeated this in Abu Dhabi, then you went to Dubai. That, for all of us who have done business in the region, is not the way you get anything other than collecting a card and maybe shaking hands. Building 
good business relationships for American companies in Qatar and in the Emirates and in Saudi Arabia requires FaceTime presence and understanding uh, the market. So I would frankly like to see, and I know this is expensive, and I know that people are reluctant to invest the time and the money, but frankly, a successful trade mission is one that comes and sits in Doha for three or four days, or Abu Dhabi or Dubai or Riyadh for a length. Uh, Saudi, actually tend, being a bigger country, tend to get three, four day missions. The rest of us don't. Thank you, Ambassador. Uh, Dr. Anthony, I am going to now pass it to you for a wrap-up because my watch says that it's, uh, it's, it's time. All right. Uh, here's um, a, a wrap-up of sorts here. Uh, references uh, to Bahrain and Oman. They are the two that have the bilateral uh, free trade agreements. And a reason, uh, not so widely published, is that uh, the two of them uh, are seen by Westerners in, in more of a strategic uh, military security defense cooperation uh, dynamic uh, than the others. Uh, Oman has the oldest access to facilities agreement from 1979-80 uh, uh, with the United States under the Carter administration. Uh, there are four other uh, defense cooperation uh, agreements. Um, uh, Saudi Arabia doesn't have one. And people say, well, that's a shortcoming, a limitation, what's going on there. Uh, but here, uh, one mustn't try to confuse form with function. No, there isn't one in form, but in terms of substance, uh, there's a longer, more multifaceted, deeper, broader, extensive U.S. defense cooperation with Saudi Arabia uh, than arguably uh, several of any of the others uh, combined. Uh, point two is that... Um, and by having free trade agreements with uh, Bahrain and Oman, both countries have unemployment issues and challenges, so does Saudi Arabia. And so the, the notion of trying to broaden the image and the substance of the bilateral relationship with the United States is something more than defense, uh, more than these two countries seen perceptually as objects, uh, but rather a material gain, people's material well-being and jobs and trade and investment in technology of cooperation, the establishment of joint commercial ventures, which free trade agreements usually facilitate. Uh, so there was this additional interest to try to give this additional face to Bahrain and Oman through the three uh, trade uh, agreements. Uh, point three is that um, uh, it was seen at the beginning that we'll, we'll go all together at once or we won't go at all. Uh, because think of us as six mountain climbers. Uh, and, and six mountain climbers, one is bound to be more laggard than the other five. And the other five may get frustrated with the one. And one among the five may say, uh, cut the rope to that SOB. He, uh, she or he's slowing us down. Well, she or he may yodel all the way to the valley floor below. Uh, but then you have five, and one of the five will be more laggard uh, than the others. So no, the, the notion was let's go all together or, or not at all. And that notion carried them forward to a degree. But there have been two exceptions uh, to this, and that is the electricity grid was decided uh, four out of six, uh, Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia. 
in 2009. I was at the summit when the Emir pulled the switch and the lights went on uh, at the borders crossing of those four countries. The UAE and Oman said, look, we've started later and uh, we need more time to catch up. And, uh, uh, and the other four said, well, when you do catch up, you'll be uh, welcome to, to join. So there are these issue-specific things where unanimity is not necessarily required, and that's given them a, a degree of flexibility and an ability to uh, operate uh, quickly there. I did mention that there are three that have unemployment problems, and in some cases severe ones uh, for the edu uh, university-educated ones under 30. Uh, Kuwait does not have the same uh, challenge, nor does Qatar, nor does the UAE. And it's because of the demographics that uh, Danny touched on with regard to the UAE, which has an echo in, in Kuwait and uh, even more so in uh, Qatar. So they don't all have the same humanistic, demographic, uh, economic, commercial, uh, employment, uh, labor uh, uh, challenges. Uh, three have it. The other three are, are rather blessed in not having it. Uh, point four is that you can think of the region in a macro way and a micro way. Macro, they're all uh, energy uh, dependent, they're all monarchies, they're all dynasties, all ruling families, all pretty much pro-Western, uh, pro-United States uh, as their favorite strategic partner and they have more tens of thousands of their students in the United States than any other place uh, in the world. And they share much else in common in this regard, English being the lingua franca, more or less American English for defense, for finance, trade, investment, higher education, technology, science, research, and development. Uh, they all share that uh, and at the micro level too. However, I, I, I've tried to introduce a new concept. You can have macro analyses, micro analysis, but you can also have medio analysis, something in between. And there is something in terms of the resonance of the Northern Arabian Gulf, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, and Bahrain. If you look at, under the microscope, 90% of their uh, strategic intelligence, security, defense relationship for the last 50 to 60 years has been with the Western country, increasingly the United uh, States. Uh, with regard to the other three, the uh, southern Arabian Gulf states, no. Uh, the Dutch are still there with Royal Dutch Shell. And so are the British with British petroleum and British gas and a focus on India and Africa and, and South Asia, which is not so much the focus of Kuwait and, and Bahrain. So there are these more than subtle differences uh, between them at that particular uh, level. These are the wrap-up uh, comments uh, with regard to uh, the uh, GCC and business prospects. And I think that UAE is your frame of reference as to how far it can go, will go, and has gone. Uh, slow but sure, uh, but predictable. Uh, and, the, and the GCC is sort of a, a macro UAE in that regard.